0: Tanakwe, welcome to another episode of Views from Down Under, and uh, I am your host Alex Tan, and together uh, with me, my fellow panelists uh, Orson Tan, Neil Van Vary, and June Espia, who's connecting with us through the Philippines. Hello. And uh, today, uh, uh, Nick, who is un- unable to join us uh, because he is not particularly feeling uh, well, uh, and we wish him uh, get well soon. And you can join us on the next episode. So, today, uh, lots of things to talk about. Instead of the usual two topics, we have four short topics that we think would be uh, quite interesting. The first one is the disappearance of the defense minister of China, the absence of the defense minister, uh, Li Shangfu. And it has been quite a notable absence now, so we want to comment a little bit about it. Uh, My colleague Orson Tan did allude to that in the last episode, and this time around there's more news about it, so we'd like to analyze that. The second is a uh, speech, uh, not necessarily speech, but... uh, a comment made by uh, f- former foreign minister of Singapore, uh, George Yeo, when he was invited to a conference in Taiwan, wherein he waded in to the China-Taiwan issue and the reaction by Taiwan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs to what he has to say. Uh, the other third c- topic that we want to touch on is uh, Kim Jong uh, Kim Jong-un's visit to far east russia and and met his uh, buddy uh, vladimir putin uh, in going on a heavily armored slow train to to russia and the last topic is what is all over the news these days the spat between canada and india all right so we'll start with the the first topic uh, on li shangfu's uh Disappearance and absence—it's kind of becoming a habit of uh, people dropping off and becoming absent these days in China. Let's start with you, Lao Go ahead.
1: I think the the bigger thing is, is becoming a habit is if you're appointed by Xi, you end up you know six months later disappearing from the face <laughs> of the earth. That's the big big question because it's first Qinggang and now Li Xiang Fu. and the big question about uh with Li Shangfu is how much of it of this report that he's being investigated for corrupt practices, for embezzlement when he was in charge of the acquisitions department of the PLA, really stand up. And if it really does stand up, then the next question is how much... Then the next question that needs to be asked is really how much control does the party have over the PLA? Because from the looks of it, you know, this, the, this purge of PLA leadership hasn't just started with Lee. You know, before Lee, you had the top judge of the the martial court that was removed, voted out, and prior to that, you had two of the leaders in the rocket force. Mm. You know, sounds better than space force. <laughs> the rocket force <laughs> so also the rocket force. The rocket force removed as well. So clearly, there's there is a systemic issue of corruption in the PIA itself. Yeah. And given that, you know, outside observers, especially Western observers, they seem to believe that Xi is all-powerful and he has his fingers in all the pots and he has so much control, how then do you explain the PLA's kind of existence or operation as a almost separate entity?
0: I think there's another aspect to it as well. Uh, as the Chin Kang affair, there are more recent news that are coming out that he is also being investigated on probable two things. Uh, this illicit relationship when he was in Washington DC, and then also probable corruption. Now, uh, Orson did mention about the systemic, this issue of PLA corruption within the PLA, Mm -hmm. and how much control the political party, the CCP has on the PLA. We have to remind our, our listeners here that in the communist system of China, of the People's Republic of China, the PLA is actually the military arm of the CCP. Yep. You know, it's the military arm of the CCP. In this situation, you have a chairman of a, of the party's military commission mm-hmm. that actually controls the PLA, and the, the chair sure. of that military commission is actually Xi Jinping. Yep. I want to add a second point to it, which you alluded, is the question of how much control that Xi Jinping actually has because not only on the military, that but, but now we have two people, two senior officials Him that, picked, that, that I, he mm. handpicked, right? That he handpicked that is now, you know, removed from office really quite unceremoniously. Yep. That's number one. And we, last week we did talk about, uh, we did comment about this Nikkei report that said that Xi Jinping was, reprimanded by party elders, yep. right? So this is, uh, it's thickening the soup, mm. thickening the plot really. So the, one thing where we're, when, when we listen to or read Western press, for example, there's always this, we paint this omnipotent, omnipotent. Xi Jinping, right? This very strong total control of the party. And, and a unified
1: system under him. And a
0: unified system under him. So the question that we have now is that if these two senior officials that he handpicked are being pulled, does does it call into question how strong his his control of the party is?
1: Or, or is it a problem of his own making? Because we, we've talked about the succession problem a lot, right? Mm. And now that he's been approved for his third term and basically not having any obstacles to becoming, you know, God-King-Emperor for the rest of his life, he's basically set himself up to say, you know, there's no avenue or there's no outlet for these other smaller factions that have been waiting in, in the wings for his him to, to kind of step off the stage yeah, and, yeah. and let mm. the factions resume their internal politicking. Yeah. So kind of it's setting up that, that thing.
2: I think it's important to remember that, um, you know, in democracies, we always talk about factions and political parties. Yeah. It's not the case that those factions don't don't exist in an autocratic system like China's. Yes, of and course. more importantly, what is the political economy implication of this? If it is the case indeed that she's stranglehold of the CCP, and that unified structure of his power is not quite as un, as unified as we thought it is, then what's the what's the signal that you're sending to businesses? What's the signal that you're sending to those investors that you're trying to attract? And that's the point we made even in the Chen Gang affair yeah. that. You know, it takes, in political economy, it takes a bit of iteration to get that stability, to get that trust, to lower transaction costs. What is the signal to the markets and the businesses after all these purges and after these unceremonious removals? That's an interesting question as far yeah, as I see so it.
3: What? Yeah, yeah uh, if you may, uh, Orson and, uh, and Neil, sorry for butting in, um, I think part of the omnipotence Itself is this, this is also how China and the see himself, when he ascended to the presidency, wanted to project himself. You know, them, the sense. So, part of the narrative that's been fought by the West is also a product of Chinese propaganda. But in the end, we're not really looking at two different kinds of narratives. And the way I see it is if you look at China, it is what Dan Slater and the others have called as a that has turned into sultanism mm-hmm. on one hand, because the regime, in a lot of ways, has been bent at certain aspects of it uh, to 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 she himself. And that if we see regimes where the rule is has turned personalistic, then you would expect the rise and falls of careers of of your officials depends on the relationships with the central figure. But on the other hand, as Neil has been alluding to, is that this is simply the nature of competition in one party states. Right? This is the nature of, of competition in one party states. That factionalism inherently is the way they interact with each other. And it has never been, I think, since he ascended the presidency from being secretary, I think that she has never been in control. Yeah. But this yeah. Is about this is about how the propaganda machine yeah, has been framing him, and of course the the West bought that book line. And- yeah. yeah,
1: I I I think it's he has always been able to give the semblance of control because mm. when he ascended into the presidency, what he did was he moved his supporters into those positions of power as well. He filled up the Congress with with members of the party that he handpicked, and he sidelined anyone else who was from the different the different ideological camps within the party itself. But what these these members or these members of the other factions did did very well was they just bided their time. So so the the cadres that came that were were groomed by the Hu administration besides him, they were all just quietly biding their time, waiting on the sidelines for for an opportunity. And uh, then again I also asked, you know, how much of the current problems with the Chinese economy and the, the Chinese state is has also presented the opportunity for mm. factionalism. Yes, of course. Yes, no, I, I think absolutely. the
0: factionalism is always there, right? So as Orson alluded to, you ha- you have these different factions. One is an out-faction, the other one is the in-faction, right? And But the in-faction itself, you know, if we, even just using our understanding of party politics, even in democratic party politics, within each faction, you form a coalition, right? So several factions form a coalition and they end up having a dominant coalition of some sort, mm. Right. And in this dominant coalition, uh, you have to make sure that you satisfy all the faction leaders and all the faction head, right? So in a situation that is happening in the Chinese situation, is that there are some political factions are waiting in the wings, as you said, and then it presented an opportunity Mm. that uh, these factions are always there. They're just waiting for you to trip up, so to speak. We're waiting for you to trip up. And you know, I was. There's a saying in 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 Chinese. Uh, if you literally translate it, it says that if you're gonna if you're gonna kick a dog, you have to know who the master is, mm. right? Uh, so the the meaning of that is that if you are in the case of the Qing Kang and the and the defense minister's situation, Li Changfu's situation is is that if if both of them are indeed removed from their positions. Mm. And that Xi Jinping handpicked them. Yeah. Right. Some faction must know if we're doing this, we're sending a message to Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. Yeah. Yeah. That you know? your
2: position was perhaps weakened.
0: Yeah. It's not yeah. a very the paint the painting of Xi Jinping as this all powerful one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, we can call that into question.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it it's uh, I mean, the question that it raises also is: up until this point, observers outside China who've, who've said that okay, Xi Jinping was had this unified control and the central leadership. How much do we actually know, sitting outside of China? You know, that's the, that's that's another interesting question for me. How much of the information that, or, or or to put it in a different way, are we reading the tea leaves the way you know in 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 any form of appropriate
0: sense? Yeah, and I think there's something for us all to observe uh, going forward, right? That uh, will there be more officials Absolutely. that will be pulled? Absolutely. And and now we're looking at major problems that China is coming in through, right? Mm-hmm. So you have very high unemployment among yeah. youth, yep. right? Do you have the problems that are happening in the real estate market? Yeah, yep. It's blowing up right now. Um, Yes, interest rates are dropping in China, but primarily to stimulate the economy. But what if the economy does not stimulate? will we now see those in economic positions and and banking positions or finance positions to be the next one to be pulled? Yeah. And wherever because their legitimacy is built on economic performance, Absolutely. right the performance of the of the country, any king on that armor, is gonna weaken yeah. Xi Jinping's hold on the on the political party, and the fact that the changes of leadership is so opaque yeah. Yeah. is not good for for the optics are not good. There's, you know,
1: there's no clear successor, and 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 the, we are not not enough time, not enough. Yes. you know, uh, yes. attention is being given to the economy and the problems of the mm. economy. Because the problems of the economy are not policy-related. Mm. They are deep structural problems that came about for the way that China tried to avoid you know, being pulled down by the great financial crisis of 2008. Mm. And even before that, yeah. you think about the amount of debt being held by local government. You think about the amount of hidden debt within, within, within the shadow banking system itself. These are all structural problems that can easily sink think a, a, a economy mm. if there isn't a sharp pivot in terms of how they want to design the system how they want to run the system yeah. but the way he's you know kind of structured his in political system is that you you cannot stand up and say otherwise everything yeah. is Xi Jinping taught mm. you know there's that article in uh, Nikkei as Asia as well about how every business meeting now starts with a reflection on CG being taught and yes. 30 minutes is for the managers is to talk about how they feel
3: I think going through, only. Go ahead. There's only there's only so much that the coercive apparatus can do. I think we've been saying that over and over again in this podcast yeah. that you can only scare people so much in authoritarian regimes. But eventually, you have to perform.
0: Yeah, and and I, and, think, and I think that definitely is the case now. Uh, they have to perform and they have to try to solve these problems. Of course, we all we all know that the two thousand seven two thousand eight. Uh, global financial crisis, China, to be honest, did its part to prop up the global, yep. global mm-hmm. system because of the depressed demand uh, in, the, in Europe and in the United States. But at the same time, though, um, what is happening right now with this excess liquidity, with this overcapacity with regards to real estate, and when most people's assets are in, in their houses, uh, there will be a challenge for the CCP going forward.
1: And one of the challenges is Taiwan, which leads us into.
0: Yeah, the next one, which is interesting. This one came out of the blue, I think. uh, And it's hardly reported in other presses uh, other than Taiwan News. Taiwan News, yeah. Uh, Although, having said that, there was this comment that was done by Elon Musk uh, that was quoted all over the place at CNN and BBC wherein Elon Musk compared Taiwan to Hawaii and the importance of, of uh, Hawaii to the United States, Taiwan is to, to China. Mm. It's not a good analogy per se. Uh, you can expect that there, were, that there was a proper response from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, in Taiwan with regards to Elon Musk's uh, comment. Well, Giorgio was invited uh, to a conference um, in Taipei and in that conference, he mentioned something about um, the one China policy, the, the relationship between China and Taiwan and cross-strait relationship. He was expressing that maybe Taiwan should think ahead and maybe a commonwealth with China yeah. on the one hand to ensure its safety and uh, future, and also commented about uh, you know, other things with regards to relationships between Taiwan and China. The response from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was quite sharp. Yeah. Uh, essentially, uh, Taiwan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs essentially said that, you know, that is n- not kosher, essentially, uh, that he waited in on you know, the subject that without much understanding of the situation on the ground in Taiwan. And more importantly, uh, in that report uh, that we have read, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs essentially said that, be careful uh, not to be a mouthpiece mm-hmm. of, of China's disinformation campaign, so to speak. So what do you guys think about that? Uh, uh,
1: I mean, first and foremost, shout out to my friends who pointed out the article to me. Clearly, they, they have a lot of time on their hands to go and read Taiwan news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think the, the first thing that comes up to me is that it's he's caught between a rock and hard place, right? He was clearly invited there to speak to what seemed to be a really deep blue crowd mm-hmm. at that conference, yeah. you know, you know, with Ma ying and all present, about you know Singapore, what he would term Singapore's view on this whole cross-strait relations, how it's and, and it's supposed to solve or how it can play out. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he did was he simply presented what he thought, what he mm-hmm. thought would be a good solution for. Taiwan, which gives you know the Taiwanese use a, a pathway forward to see, see a light at the end of the tunnel. But obviously, in the current domestic climate in Taiwan, it's definitely a no-go. So that's a miscalculation on, on his part, really idealistic. I think the, the main worry is how Mofa kind of responded to that. Because these are debates, while it may not be something that you like to hear, These are debates that need to be heard and had. Mm. You need to give some space for these opinions to come out so that you can address them and tell people why you feel it's not the best path forward for Taiwan, especially since we're going into a presidential campaign in what, how many months is it?
0: Three months. Three months? January, mid-January. Yeah,
1: mid-January, right? You know, we are talking about changing changing our leadership, you know, Tsai Tsai Ing-wen stepping down, you know, whoever takes over look, currently is looking like you know uh, a DPP candidate. Mm. Is, is William G- Lai. William Lai. That's right. Yeah, is 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 in line for it. But even then, they need to tell the Taiwanese people how they foresee charting this relationship between the mainland and Taiwan because it's not gonna go away.
2: Mm.
1: It's not gonna go away. It's and 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 a solution of Taiwanese independence puts them yeah. on a hard and fast track into direct confrontation, which is not what Taiwan wants as well. It's not good for the Taiwanese people. It's not good for the economy. Yeah. So they need to have this hard conversation about how are we going to,
2: you know. Well, what strikes me is... Sorry, uh, Gongjun. Yeah, on, yeah as, as, as,
3: as speeches go, you no, know, uh, it is about what was said, but also so much about what was not said. Mm-hmm. And I think that when it was framed as cross strait relations from a Singaporean perspective. No, no, this is really George Yeo's own politics and position under reunification. Let's let's take it as that. Um, the interesting thing for me here is how the relationship, cross-strait relations, and to add Singapore to the mix is how it's being framed in almost really paternalistic terms. That <laughs> this is a family feud and there's a relative intervening. But the most important Part of the speech for me, and Orson has spoken about this is, and then maybe this is something that we should talk about for a little bit is this is the choice really binary for Taiwan? Is is the choice really just status quo or guard gradual merger through the Commonwealth arrangement? And I think that if you frame it as that, which he has, I think it severely misunderstands what's going on domestically in Taiwan, what's going domestically in China, and how cross race relations are playing out with our players like the United States and in AUKUS.
2: Well, what struck me the most out of the saga was MOFA's response, as Professor Jan and Orson were talking about earlier. And it's almost slightly forked tongue in a way that if Taiwan goes to the extent of calling itself a democracy constantly and why it should be preserved as an, an island nation, then why is the Ministry of Foreign Affairs shutting down alternative views to which you might not be that agreeable? I um, I'm quite interested by that aspect and secondly it was also I think that, that that acerbic response went slightly beyond just the Ministry of Foreign Affairs I came across an editorial in the Taipei Times which yeah. said oh uh you know would Singapore ever join uh this Commonwealth uh and why is you know Southeast Asia wading into affairs in in you know cross-strait um relations and that was an interesting um I think that's
1: just element it's it. just a sign of how how deep-seated this issue is right yes. now, right? And how much of a nerve it is, right? And and as much as as much as people want to argue that the that, that line between the green and the blue cream is 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 clearly clearly defined by your position on reunification and, and independence. You know, the the whole the current climate in Taiwan seems to to lean only to one way and it leans towards the fact that they they want to distance themselves as much as possible you know i will not say that they they want independence per se but they want to be as distant as possible as distant as possible and june is right the the issue with with for taiwan right now especially for their domestic politics is that it's being presented as a binary choice whether that that is a a, a consequence of the fact that it's, it has always been framed as a binary choice in their politics between the blue and the green, you know, that the whole Chinese-Taiwanese mm. cleavage thing, or, you know, or whatever it is, the, the, the fact of the matter now is they have to face the, they have to make the discussion, have that, that discussion in the pu- public sphere about what are the options available for the Taiwanese. There are plenty of options. There are plenty of ways this the situation can play out. But, you know, saying that, or putting a broad brush to things and saying everything is is, mm. is Chinese disinformation, discredits that that uh, discussion that the Taiwanese need to have.
0: And but it's a really tough situation for Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, if you think about uh, what's happening on the ground, really, uh, that there is indeed active pressure from the PRC uh, that is, I would say, narrowing and 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 making the the space for Taiwan, so constrained. Yes. I mean, mm. this is, uh, I mean, you can see why the Taiwanese uh, and in series of public opinion surveys, mm-hmm. right? Uh, my colleagues at the Election Study Center at National Chengchi University, a shout out to you guys for a good job doing your surveys. Uh, you know, they, they have done a series of, uh, yearly series on, how Taiwanese identify themselves, their national identity. Um, Do you consider yourself Chinese? Do you consider yourself both Chinese and Taiwanese? Or do you consider yourself just Taiwanese, right? And then also their preferences on status quo, uh, unification, independence. And you're seeing that over the years, and certainly since Taiwan's um, democratization, that move towards a much more uh, Taiwanese identity has certainly become strong. I wouldn't say that, you know, I wouldn't say that independence has necessarily became much more a preferred position, but certainly unification has become a less preferred position, you know? So, So it's actually a three, you know, It's a three position in in Taiwan, right? You have unification, which is becoming less and less and less popular. It's already very tiny, tiny. Uh, It doesn't matter whether you're considered in the pan blue camp or the pan green camp. I think that unification thing is kind of out, out as a choice. It is really out as a choice. But because of that, and I think the PRC knows this, they're really squeezing the heck out of uh, of, of Taiwan's political space. Now, you're talking about political space. You know, Taiwan has lost so many uh, diplomatic uh, partners now, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they probably have around 14 left uh, at the moment. They're small, very tiny countries. And then the economic space, which Taiwan is a, such a trade and, uh, trade-dependent and trade country, country mm-hmm. it's being locked out of the more important organizations and trade uh, areas, right? Uh, trade partnerships, like, for example, RCEP. Yes. Uh, it's not part of RCEP okay? It's not part of uh, CPTPP, although it has applied, and in actuality, Taiwan qualifies. You know, it already has that very high standard, but the political impact and the political consequences are making the other countries who are current members that have to decide on Taiwan's membership kind of think twice. Right? And and even WHA, when Taiwan can actually contribute Mm -hmm. to this. Uh, So, it's difficult. I can see. I can see why Taiwanese sensitivities have been pricked. Yeah, of course. On this, you know, because in a way, uh, part of Giorgio's. Uh, you know, I, I I follow his his talk quite a lot. He's a very very perceptive uh, uh, observer of uh, Asian politics. I would have to say, uh, but in that sense, I think the issue is a issue of also of identity, which mm-hmm. he did not mm-hmm. bring in. He, he 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 In a way, assume the Chinese identity. It's still relatively strong in in Taiwan, but Taiwan is forming a a different identity, yeah. and that identity uh, they may culturally still think of uh, share you know, the, some... share share the culture, but even that Chinese cultural identity is now subsumed into. A Taiwanese mm-hmm. political identity, as yeah. uh, Orson, your uh, your own uh, PhD <laughs> research uh, tells us, yeah. and I, I think that's and true. Also, sorry,
3: sorry, Jin, go ahead. Yeah, and and it also I think helps to think about uh, who George Zhou is actually talking to in Taiwan. That's right. The And audience. I think many many of his engagements, many of the people that he's tied up with are actually KMT people. Mm. He's yeah. kind of ties with the his, his engagement with the DPP has been ranging from either cold or distance to, you know, no conversations at all across yeah, yeah. this, this is engagement. So this is also being shaped by who is speaking to about what's going on in the ground. I
0: think Singapore's uh, relation with Taiwan uh, because uh, of the KMT's long-term um, governance, uh, mm-hmm. even under Lee, Kwan, Lee Kuan Yew, for yeah. example, it has always been, uh, they, they understand the, the ruling party back then, the KMT, quite well. So they had deep ties, deep, deeper ties to to the KMT rather than to the DPP. And I, and honestly, I don't think it helped. Uh, uh, it it didn't help years ago. We're in uh,
1: birds of the feather. That's all I can
0: say. Yeah, uh, that's true as well. You know, <laughs> not yeah. not true now. I
1: must quantify my statement. Not true now. B- before I get uh, banned from returning home, but yeah. <laughs> you know but i i, I feel like you, what alex is saying is is correct you know the, the taiwanese clearly have made certain progress in terms of how they they view themselves as as a people how they view taiwan as a nation and all that kind of thing and and but mofa in 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 kind of just brushing everything off as as, as propaganda. propaganda it's being a bit paternalistic don't you mm-hmm. think it's it's a throwback to you know martial law and saying that you know we can decide what you can say and that's it like mm. the the taiwanese people are more than smart enough and they they, very they are very very clear on their 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 thoughts about this issue mm. yeah
0: i think there's very there's a high level of sophistication there Yeah. Mm. and that is shown uh, by the taiwanese people with regards to their understanding of the situation and but you know as we know this china taiwan cross strait relationship uh, the reason why it's still persisting as a main conflict cleavage in Taiwanese electoral politics is because there is no solution to it at the moment. Mm. And it's caught up actually in this uh, interplay between the United States and China, you know, and and now Japan as well. So so Taiwan's uh, fate in a way, uh, yes, uh, it'd be nice if they can completely have their own say on whatever but the reality is it's also part of a bigger bigger game, uh, game, game between between, between major powers of the region right so so that's that's where we are so you know i don't think we can we can talk about this 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 thing forever there's lots of yeah. different concepts and variations and permutations my colleague uh, professor emerson neo of um, duke university conducts this Taiwan National Security Survey. And in that survey, you know, just the preferences with regards to status quo, unification, independence, and what have you, has all sorts of contingency that it's, the, the equation is long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so you can see how complex the issue is. Status quo, yeah. if this, 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 yeah, this. Yeah. If they attack. You know what do you do if they do not attack? What do you do if if they attack and the U.S. does not help? What do you mm-hmm. do? So you can see how complex. Just asking the question on a survey is complex enough. No, needless to say, uh, for uh, George to uh, wade in uh, into this into this thing. But I I do uh, agree with both of you guys. He was invited by the a pan de- blue yeah. a pan blue camp, and the audience itself uh, is. You know, speaking to the audience and talking mm. to the audience, I suppose, so, so there you go. All right, uh, let's move to this uh, new budding bromance uh, between uh, Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. You know, I mean, look, uh, Vladimir Putin met Kim Jong-un in Far East Russia. There was a lot of secrecy with regards to how he's going to travel, uh-huh. Kim Jong-un. And it ended up that he traveled with his special armored train that is so heavy that it can only travel slow. Uh, but he did enjoy Russia, apparently, so much that he stayed a little bit longer. So what do you get on this thing?
1: It's, it's the only place in the world he's currently welcomed. <laughs> That's why he enjoys Russia. And plus, traveling on a train is like a throwback to uh, World War One. you know, the war on timetables where everything ran by trains. and. But I I feel like the the bigger thing about the bigger issue with Kim's move or Kim's visit to to Russia is that we've always considered China as the North Korean whisperer in the region, right? We've always thought that that China's had its its finger on the pulse on how to how to prod North Korea in a certain certain manner. And now if he's gonna buddy buddy up with 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 old Vladimir up in up in Moscow. Then what does that do to the dynamics of the East Asian region? Because mm. North Korea is a nuclear power, and it is a nuclear power that became a nuclear power despite the wishes of
0: China and everyone else. And everyone else. Yeah. 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 I, I think I think in a way when we t- when we think of China uh, as the North Korean whisperer, yeah. um, the reality that the Six Party Talks has gone nowhere. Mm-hmm pretty much tell, tell us that if China is the North Korean whisperer, they're very bad about it, Yeah, <laughs> you know? They're very bad about it, and, and that's number one. But the other side that we have been bringing up, right, is the idea that even small states and weaker states- Have agency? Have agency, yeah. you know? North Korea can certainly play China. Yeah. They can play Russia if they want to as well, and now that they have the nuclear weapon, my gosh, mm.
1: I mean that's that was China's biggest fear about a nuclear-armed North, North Korea. Korea be, yeah. That it, it becomes a player so close to its mm. border because it's already got India and Pakistan on one side. Yeah, you know it it doesn't want to have North Korea up
0: uh, up towards the what northeast. Mm.
1: Mm.
0: And there's another interesting twist. I just thought about it as you were talking about, as you were talking about how uh, dangerous this whole neighborhood is. Yeah, you know for China. There's another calculation that is not only North Korea having nuclear weapons close to its border, but because South Korea and Japan are non nuclear powers and, and do not want to become nuclear powers themselves, the fact that North Korea became a nuclear power might trigger a domino effect. I- means that the United States will always be in the region as a, as a security guarantor. Yeah. So it does complicate China's calculation because if they don't want the United States to be in this region, right? Then- North Korea is the variable, right? They need yeah. to control yeah. that variable. Yeah. But yeah. because North Korea got their nuclear weapons and South Korea and Japan don't, they have to rely on a nuclear umbrella that the United States provide, yeah. Yeah. which China won't like.
2: Yeah. <laughs> It almost seems like a collection of pariahs, as it were. Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un, Lukashenko from Belarus, uh, Iran selling drones to Russia, all sort of seem to congregate and surround Vladimir Putin. But what struck me was the whole point of this North Korean agency, that no longer is the case that China is the only option as far as North Korea's patron saint is concerned. You know, it, it Russia is looking to North Korea, North Korea is looking to Russia. In in exchange for arms, it's getting possible access to technology, as some reports said. It's certainly getting some um, supposedly it asks for more food and and and, and more uh, help in terms of commodities. So that seems to be a uh, a relationship that may be heading somewhere. But in, in terms of the fact that, well, where does this leave China in relation to North Korea? It certainly complicates that quite a bit.
0: Yeah, the, other, the one thing I noticed is that uh, in this meeting between uh, Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un, uh, did Vladimir Putin secure um, Kim Jong-un's promise of support for, milit- for arms? Delivery? And well, our I,
2: ra- I I read somewhere that it has been happening slowly and steadily since twenty twenty two, and they? before before this yeah. visit, there was the Russian defense minister in fact visited South, visited North Korea, and he was shown sort of ballistic missiles yeah. and whatnot, and um, there were discussions, I believe, in Russia about sending some artillery uh, hmm. to, to to Russia yeah, from North yeah. Korea. Yeah. So yeah.
3: this is this. The, my reading of this is this has been framed as kind of closing a deal that they've been doing for some time. And then the one thing that North Korea, of course, doesn't have is uh, surveillance capability through space. And then Russia is offering that through the satellites. And, uh, you know, uh, it's a question as well of uh, what the arms market looks like. Who's so, going to sell to North Korea? Who's hmm. going to buy from Russia at the moment? Uh, with, with India emerging as the new cheap kind of, you know, mass-produced weapons that serve as a deterrent anyway, you wouldn't want to go to, to Russia. With all the stuff that's been going on in Ukraine, so you go elsewhere, but of course, but, but unfortunately for uh, for North Korea, uh, they have very li- limited options. The interesting thing,
0: yeah, go ahead, go ahead, June, go ahead. Uh, the interesting thing about this is that it also implies that um, the Ukraine war, with regards to Russia, is really depleting Russian armaments. Yeah, you know, that they have to source from North Korea, which. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't put North Korean defense military industry as really, you know, tier one no, yeah. quality, yeah. right? So you're you're at a point where in Russia is having to really find sources because uh, my understanding is China is keeping their hands off this thing, mm-hmm. uh, but North Korea is more than willing to to supply, right? So that's interesting. But on the other hand, North Korea got something out of Russia, right? So. He Kim Jong-un visited some Sukhoi um aircraft facility, yeah, I believe, yeah, right?
2: Yeah. It's 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 an irony, isn't it? That not so long ago Russia was one of North Korea's largest suppliers of arms and ammunition and now the other table seemed to have turned.
0: Yeah. And is it a sign that the strategy of depleting Russian strength uh by procrastinating and and, and really supporting Ukraine and helping it at least stay on the fight for a long time is really now working. Mm. And it would uh, seriously deplete Russian... Russian... Resources? Military resources yes. and defense capabilities. So, but then again, you know, winter is coming now. And as we know, the, the best general that Russia has, it's called General Snow. <laughs> so, uh, and yeah. and, Ru- and and Ukraine would have has this two month window mm. to deal with yeah. any counteroffensives if they yeah. want to.
3: Otherwise, Russia is gonna hunker down again. Yeah. Yeah. And your and your strategic delay strategy really is only as good as the next U.S. election. So that's yes. True. Really yes. Absolutely. Over and over again, this podcast, it's only as good as that, and we never know what happens next and whether the rest of the West without the U.S. is willing to continue what they've been doing in Ukraine.
0: That's true. That's true. And you're talking about, you know, the impact of the American election, the support of the Republicans, and the House Republicans are actually questioning Mm -hmm. all the support and where did all the money go? And then, you know, all of that stuff. So it's really happening. But but we'll see what happens in the next two months.
1: I I think before we move on, on this whole... North Korea Russia issue we need to talk about Japan and South Korea as well mm. because Japan and South Korea's calculations are going to change with this new deal like yep. if North Korea is going to establish an even closer working relationship with, with Russia and, and totally bypass China as a middleman or whatsoever then what does that mean for for the whole nuclear aspirations of South Korea and, and Japan because like we were talking, uh, talking the past week Japan's calculation in terms of its security needs is not only the fact of a rising China. It's the, f- you know, the rising China is not the one shooting, inter, you know, ballistic missiles that mm. land off their coast. It's North Korea that is the big, the the big, you know, unknown variable at this at this moment.
0: Yeah, and 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 you have to remember that there are northern islands in of Japan that Russia occupies yep. mm. and that's been a sore point between Russia Japan relationship for a long time. So so you're right. I think when you when you think of when you think of how the trilateral meeting mm-hmm. that that camp da- that happened in Camp David it is as much about the rising China but more immediate actually is North, North Korea yeah. yeah because the threat to s- the threat to south korea is very directly north korea mm-hmm. right and then the next is uh japan yeah. right i mean korea is so close to japan that uh like you said they've been testing all these and flying all over the place yeah. and mm-hmm. and yeah. and that's it is
1: dropping it's been dropping in the ocean right next to the the island the the what was it the easternmost no westernmost island chain mm. in Japan mm. as well. Yeah, yeah. And,
0: and, and, and and so the story then becomes the United States will continually be an important yeah, guarantor to. of Japan and South Korean security.
1: But will that be enough for Japan and South Korea? That's the, that's the thing, because mm. just this week, there were uh, some uh, pieces in the South Korean press talking about how South Korea hasn't fully shelved its nuclear ambitions. Yes. yes they yeah. they realize that they cannot depend solely on the United States to guarantee their security. Yes, and yes, they are actually mm, yes. as a plan B, they want to have nuclear capabilities. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then when you when you think about it, the whole neighborhood yeah. becomes yeah. really dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so so China's reaction to all this is almost like saying, Oh, the United States wants to contain the trilateral is all about China, mm. right? But what we're saying here today is that it's not all about China. Mm-hmm. It is because there's other calculations, and yeah. we and Korea, South Korea and Taiwan mm-hmm. and Japan does live in a very tough neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. you know? And, and we've been saying about, you know classical theory of international relations, right? The world is anarchic. Mm. It's a dog-eat dog world out there. And and and, no, and you have to do your own security.
1: And no one is as maverick as North Korea. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, as much as you the press wants to drum up the threat of China, China still operates in a manner that we can understand. North Korea operates like they don't belong on this planet.
0: <laughs> well, they have nothing to lose. They right? have nothing to lose. Yeah. 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 They really have nothing to lose. When you when you're when you push them to a corner now, they really have nothing to lose. And for China, there's a lot to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, because they are so integrated to the global trading system that any disruption of that is not good for China. Seriously, it's not good for China. But for North Korea, it doesn't really matter. You know? So let's move to the next topic. Uh, This is getting really interesting about alliances and, you know, friends and not so much friends. And uh, this recent thing that has been popping up all over the news uh, is India and Canada in this. Serious diplomatic spat right now, yep. right? Uh, it has something to do with Canadian accusation of Indian government involvement in an assassination mm. of a Canadian citizen of a Canadian citizen of uh, sick Canadian, Yeah. Um, sick Canadian. Yep. Canadian. And uh, since that time, there's this really very strange dynamics happening between India and Canada. Maybe I first read about it by accident. Uh, on the fact that uh, new, apparently New Zealand and Canada do share something t- uh, in common—broken
2: planes—we have yeah. broken
0: planes, right? <laughs> so we have stuck prime ministers and, and stuck prime ministers and broken planes. And in this case, Justin Trudeau, on the return trip from G20, mm. his jet—something happened to it. Yep. he had to stay over a couple of nights, and uh, the Indian. Foreign service uh, and the Indian government uh, that give, gave him a cold shoulder apparently. Yep. Well, they, all, they
2: offered him a jet, but he said no. Oh, okay. So what's the story? What's the story? Well, well it, it was all very rum. I must say that when, when these accusations first came out, I think Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister in Parliament, when discussing the assassination of his Canadian citizen or rather the murder of this Canadian citizen at that stage, in Parliament said that uh, there was some evidence to suggest that... Credible link. Credible link um, to suggest that agents of India or Indian agents were involved in the murder of this this Canadian citizen. And this Canadian citizen, as far as India is concerned, was listed as a terrorist by India in 2020. He was part of an organisation which was supporting... Um, seek separatist sentiments, sometimes called the Khalistan movement. And if I had had to conceptualize that in a nutshell, it's essentially a movement which demands the carving out of the Indian state of Punjab into a separate state. But But, uh, But there are underlying social, economic, and political forces for the better part of the last 50, 60 years, which lend that emphasis to um Khalistan's movement. Mm-hmm. And this movement has had quite a few um sympathizers from Sikh communities overseas in the UK, in the US, in Canada. Canada particularly has a has, has a large Sikh community. Second second largest second in the world. largest, absolutely, two percent of its population, but that's still quite high numbers. Um, so India as far as this Canadian citizen was concerned, uh is was a terrorist. It was responsible according to India for killings in the state of Punjab. And uh, domestically, India is very sensitive about this, um, secession, uh, this secessionist uh, issues going yeah. on in Punjab because it's, uh, it's always been a tinderbox. It's, yeah, it flared yeah. up in the 80s. Uh, the, one of the consequences of that was the murder of Indira Gandhi when she was prime minister. Oh, yeah, Recently, knows. it's been flared up again because there was a, a, a Sikh priest who turned out to be a secessionist leader again in the state of Punjab and there was a big manhunt which... In as a consequence, again, um, got sentiments soaring up in overseas um, Sikh communities. And the Indian consulates and high commissions in Ottawa and San Francisco were attacked, which was the root cause of the Indian-Canada recent spat. Where it escalated after that, after this attack on Indian missions, was that India felt that foreign governments weren't doing enough to clamp down on what the Indian government calls anti-Indian voices and anti-Indian sentiments, as in secessionist sentiments. Um, So domestically, it's a supercharged issue. uh, And once Canada made these accusations, India came out and vehemently denied it and rejected and said, uh, these accusations are brazenly false. But that's the domestic side. But what's also interesting is the international side, which is that When you were saying when the when the Canadian plane broke down, one delegation of the Canadian, one member of the Canadian delegation actually flew to the UK to inform and brief uh, the British Prime Minister that Indian-Canadian relations were about to were about to nosedive, and prior to making these accusations public, Canada did reach out to the US to its Five Eyes partners. Uh, requesting them to publicly come out and condemn this, and so far we've not heard much as far as
1: uh, other than uh, we the investigation must continue and be allowed to proceed, and we await the findings. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Right.
3: absolutely. You have to you have you have to give it to Trudeau though. He had managed to make domestic primarily domestic issue now everybody's problem, especially in the West. I yep. mean, uh, yeah. you know, it's a. I think you know the a condemnation by the West right now will be both hypocritical. We know that in the last century alone, how no many calculated surgical strikes, if I may call them, they perform <laughs> all throughout the world. And also, if they condemn right now, it's also amateurish. You know, Can you really risk losing your fifth largest economy and your most populous country you know, in the current era of, of strategic competition? Yeah. And apparently yeah. they can But I, But you have to I, give it to Trudeau. I think Trudeau right was now, false.
1: I think Trudeau was forced into this because I read that before he made the speech in parliament the Canadian media had gotten hold of the information that Canadian intelligence had managed to establish the credible link between the murder of this mm. Sikh activist and Indian agents so he was prob- he had to to preempt the release yeah. by the media yeah because how can and you, you must remember this is not a, a Kosogi incident where no. where he is a Saudi citizen you know Murdered in, in Some consulate Saudi, cons- of, yeah. Saudi consulate outside of America, you know. This, this is a Canadian, I mean, he is a naturalised Canadian citizen, but he's still a Canadian citizen, mm. murdered on Canadian soil. If, the, if it's the media that breaks the news before, before yeah. the government, that's a, that's a political storm in itself.
2: It is, but I think it's also on, on the international side of things, there is a delicate tightrope here, yeah. you know, for the West particularly. On one hand, you've got a NATO ally. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you've got somebody that you regard as the bulwark against China. Now, as June said, the strategic environment is is such that you don't necessarily want to antagonise India. But if you were the US and the UK, what would you do? I think that's an interesting question. You
1: let Canada do the saber-rattling, and behind the scenes you just tell Modi, you know, find a compromise.
2: But from India's perspective as well, there is that... There is that reputational element because if you've if you've just come out of the G twenty, which a, l- a number of people are regarding as almost Modi's coming out on the international stage in 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 all its glory, then how does this? Where does this leave you? I mean, if two weeks ago you were all jubilant and ebullient after a successful G twenty summit, and now you're being accused of an, of what some might tantamount to essentially an act of war, legally speaking, if you if you're violating somebody yeah, else's sovereignty, then where does that leave you? And and if if for a number of Western nations, if the buy-in domestically towards this alliance and this partnership with India was the fact that India was a democracy that was supporting a rules-based order, when that's not the case, then what are you going to do? And that's, that's an interesting question. I
0: think the, uh, I, I, this is uh, just something that I uh, thought of in which I noticed that the assumption in bringing India and the expansion of this idea of an Indo-Pacific Uh, essentially is to expand that conflict ground to the Indian Ocean, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea of Asia Pacific is so much uh, a class, you know, essentially China is there, it's too crowded, right? I mean, from from the American perspective, just looking at the term Asia Pacific, it's now getting too crowded, right? It's too many big players here. I can't breathe. I need to. I need to open up and develop mm-hmm. this new concept called Indo-Pacific. So now you bring in India. The assumption is that you would be able to, quote unquote, control India, mm-hmm. right? Uh, bring in India, you can by moral suasion or persuasion or what have you, or using economic carrots, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You would. But this is showing that India has its own mind. Mm. Yep. you know, uh, in the, this, when we, when in the previous programs, uh, previous episodes, we keep on talking about India's strategic autonomy, acting in its own interests, uh, multi alignment. I think this is this is showing that
2: India is different. Absolutely, absolutely. It's very, very different. Absolutely. I mean, you know,
0: whether you can play India, I mean, make mm-hmm. sure that
2: India doesn't play you. I mean, if we look at it, the, the how these relationships have evolved, even if we take the last 10 years, a lot of economic carrots have already been thrown towards India as far as the U.S. is concerned. If we, and if we just take that example for a second, 10 years ago, it was the case that India perhaps needed the U.S. as much as U.S. needed India, if not more. Yep. Now, that calculus has changed a little. And the second point about multi alignment and India's strategic autonomy is that one of the enshrining pillars of that is this Indian nationalist sentiment that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, we mm-hmm. are, we were occupied by the British. Modi even takes it, you know, even further back than that. Since our independence, Bharat. we've. Since our independence. Sorry, we, Bharat. Oh, yeah. oh yes, Bharat. Bharat. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I should start calling it India slash Bharat. In um, uh, in in all my discussions, uh, but you know, it's it's that nationalist sentiment, that belief that after all those years of being colonized, and and the Hindu nationalist rhetoric on that stretches far back. We are now in a position where we can make our decisions, even if that means being non-aligned, even if that means being um, standing out from the crowd, as it were.
0: In in a way, it's the same narrative that the uh, the PRC is using. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, quite a you know, anti-imperialist, yes, absolutely. anti-colonial, uh, pro-global South, yeah, uh, non-aligned, you yeah. know, that is pretty much the same. We are the victims here. Absolutely. Uh, we are the victims here, so it's now our time to, absolutely. to show and whatever the West's action is, is kind of... It's, yeah.
2: it's the world's largest democracy with an authoritarian playbook.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, it's the ethno-nationalist-dictator's
2: playbook. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I suspect it's only good to get a bit more acute. Yeah, um, I think so. As as things progress and as the strategic cal- calculations evolve and change, but also as the economic side of things makes India slightly more relevant going forward.
3: June and I, and I think I think part of the reason why that sort of narrative gains traction is, you know, the way the West in the last thirty or forty years has been flailing around as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah right yeah. with the with with America slightly withdrawing itself and coming trying to come back again and this other uh, the rest of the west not really wanting to foot the bill or do much mm. you only see lately as well the rest of the middle powers just deciding maybe we can't rely on the United States and the rest of the west yeah. to come to help us mm. and and so this this narrative gains traction yeah. it does the yeah. west might might have built the order yeah. but that that, that order is not set in stone.
0: Yeah, and then the other interesting is, can you imagine what's uh, what Beijing is doing? You know? Can Absolutely. you imagine what Beijing is doing? I mean, there's a saying, in, there's a very interesting saying in, in Taiwanese. Uh, let me translate it. It says, um, I'm standing on top of the hill, watching and observing two horse kick themselves. <laughs> You know that's essentially what's it's happening, right? Happening. I mean, I'm sure they're looking at it and say, "Hey, Just what?
1: Rubbing, rubbing, rubbing the, yeah, the hands? hands oh with my bleeding, gosh!"
0: You know, I mean. So you can see that when we have players, and the the issue with middle power agency as well is is that it's a very interesting concept. But we know that there are more middle powers than there are superpowers, yep. right? Yeah. And and we know from the study of veto players, and and we know from the study of veto players is that. The more veto players there are, the more difficult decisions are made mm. and collective action is a, is a problem, yeah. right? So, so, and Junior are definitely, definitely right that uh, none of these are set in stone. And no. I would even go to the point that the trilateral that we have served uh, on Camp David is there's so many contingency factors there as well. And mm-hmm. it's all wrapped up in electoral politics, right? Of yeah. the place and all the converging and diverging interests that we can see right? So in any case, uh, there we are. Uh, We have uh, another one hour has almost passed again. It's always very interesting chats that we have. Thank you again, guys, uh, for sharing your thoughts today. And thank you to our listeners who uh, patiently listen through our programs. I hope you enjoy the programs and learn something from the program as, as much as we have learned something from each other as well Uh, Please subscribe to our program and, um, you know, press the like button, you know, uh, give us a good rating. uh, And uh, we would really, really appreciate that. So thank you very much and have a good day.